As was already mentioned by way of the announcements and the introductions tonight, as Brother Ted made them, what indeed a privilege it is for us to come together on this occasion, having been so richly blessed by that opportunity. And as also Brother Ted mentioned, we are blessed with visitors on so many occasions, and for that we're so very appreciative and thankful. And as always, we want anyone who may have a question about the character of the congregation here at Pippin to realize we have elders, men who have the oversight, and certainly they're always open to questions that may be asked about the character of our services and the things that take place. We indeed strive to simply be that type of church discussed and described fully and completely in the New Testament era by the character of the wonderful Word of God. We have been for some weeks now studying on Sunday evenings the book of Revelation. And as we have come to that book, we have learned many things, not the least of which is that this is an apocalyptic book. It is in fact presented in such a way that the truth therein is done so in symbolic fashion so very often with signs and figurative ideas, things that perhaps are easy to imagine in some cases. And we've even used pictures to help us in that understanding. And all the while, as we have learned some of these lessons, certainly we'll not review them in their entirety, but in order to bring us to where we are this evening, I would remind you that in chapters 4 and 5, we appreciated that God on the throne had a scroll in His right hand. And that scroll was written on the front and back side, indicating the fullness and the completeness thereof. And what's more, out of the, in all of the creatures in heaven or earth, only one was worthy to open that scroll. It was none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Lamb. And in chapter 5, when the Lamb took the scroll from the right hand of God, all of creation amazingly bowed and praised Him, the Lamb, for His worthiness. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and glory and honor and blessing and strength. Revelation 5, verse 12. When the Lamb took that scroll... We noticed in chapter 6, he began to loose the seals one by one. Six of those seals were loosed in the lesson as we studied last Lord's Day evening. And with the loosing of those six, as I've briefly indicated, we saw what would happen to those who were the servants to God, those faithful martyrs that, who in fact were beneath the altar in the fifth seal. We also saw, though, what would occur to those who were not the followers of Him, the difficulties that would arise in the first four as well as the sixth seal. It would be natural at this point to think that the very next thing we would discuss would be the opening of the seventh seal. But that is not what happens in chapter 7. We have something that we must take care of first. We have another order of business that must be handled and in fact discussed prior to the opening of that seventh seal. The seventh seal will be opened in chapter 8, but our lesson tonight will be the entirety of Revelation, the seventh chapter. You may wonder, what must happen before the opening of the seventh seal? What would be the critical matter, the abundantly important issue from the perspective of, the God, of God on His throne in heaven that must be fulfilled before the opening of that seventh seal? As we noticed in the reading tonight in Revelation 7-3, that which must be accomplished is the sealing of the servants of God. And that's the title I've given to tonight's lesson, The Sealing of the Servants of God. Let us then just discuss tonight the reasoning for the importance of that, the occurrence of it here in the blessed text of Revelation, and the meaning that that will have for you and me even today. 
to realize God's initiative for the sealing of the seven or the sealing of the servants of God. As you can see, I've made a few notes. These are in fact drawn from the first three verses of Revelation 7. I would ask that you turn there with me and let's read the first three verses and then return and make some discussion points about these wonderful and beautiful ideas. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. As we have turned our attention to the book of Revelation, many texts we have found to be relatively easily interpreted. There are other texts that we have discovered and we'll find others in this book that are a bit more challenging in the interpretation thereof. All the while we've noted the central theme and point has not been that difficult to decipher. When it comes to the sealing of the servants of God, would you return with me then to the notes that will lead us for the next few moments of our discussion tonight? Notice again, John saw something. A visual representation should come to our mind as we see that what John saw was this. Four angels standing at the four corners of earth. And these four angels were holding the four winds. Immediately to our mind would have come the recognition of the majesty and power of what we're seeing. It was so complete, if you will, that in verse number 1 it says again that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. There was an absolute restraint to the wind. It did not blow anywhere. What's the significance of the meaning of this? With the opening of that sixth seal that we just looked at previously, it should come to our mind again the overwhelming character of God's judgment upon those who oppose His will. Not only those now of the Roman Empire and those rulers and leaders who enacted laws and persecuted particularly the Christians, but also those throughout any age of time who would align themselves against the omnipotent, almighty God of heaven. Let us then appreciate that by virtue of that sixth seal, those who are faithful would be greatly encouraged and comforted if they could appreciate their protection from the greatness of the onslaught of God's wrath. In what way would that protection be understood? Verse 1 of Revelation 7 begins in these words. Again, the four corners of earth are mentioned. That's not some archaic failure on the part of the Bible. Long before it was understood, the earth is round. That's another symbolic reference to the absolute completeness of what's being discussed. There are four directions by way of the compass to indicate direction on the surface of earth. North, south, east, and west. And that number four, frequently in the book of Revelation will signify or symbolize perfection on earth, not perfection in heaven. Another number represents that, but rather perfection on earth, such as, again, the four compass directions or other matters in which that number four will so often appear in this book. As, for example, how many creatures were there in Revelation 4? There were four of them. And we remember that their likeness was seen on that picture or photograph that we had showed some two weeks ago. 
What did these four angels, these four angels have as their intent? Notice at the end of verse 2, to hurt the earth and the sea. These were going to pour out the character of the will of God upon all of those to whom was given to meet that punishment. <clears throat> Might we remember, as some texts are for our consideration, angels, according to Hebrews 1 verse 14, are those which are ministering spirits of God Himself. Ministering spirits on behalf of the faithful. These angels were thus carrying out the will of God with respect to the hurting or the punishment to be brought upon the nature of those on earth. Therein lies the question. God, are you going to punish the faithful together with the unfaithful? Are you going to punish the righteous and pour out your wrath upon them in the same way that you shall those who are not your own? we again begin to see the reason. Those that were righteous perhaps would desire a seal, a fixture in which they could be differentiated from those opposed to God. And thus that distinction could serve as a protection for them. We'll need to see whether it unfolds that way throughout the course of this chapter. But let us again notice that in verse 2, there was another angel another angel who was in fact rather mighty and strong who appears. And this angel in verse 3 said, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in the forehead. Immediately we can see that this reference to the wind represents in a figurative fashion the onslaught of God's fury, His terror upon the inhabitants of earth and those who will see and experience His wrath. It's a frightful vision in a way, isn't it? To stand before the presence of the all-powerful God and how awesome He is. And let us always appreciate that throughout the Scriptures, His destructive nature to those who were not pleasing to Him was rather easily understood. In fact, in, we read in the Old Testament that on one occasion, those in fact of the Assyrian army, some 185,000 of them were slain in one night. We remember in the time of the exodus from Egypt, that on the death of the firstborn, think about how many were slaughtered in one night. Our God is not only a God of love, but to those who refuse to accept His mercy, He is a God of wrath. Notice in Revelation 7, a rather dramatic picture of God's fury is about to be poured out upon the nature of those on earth. And isn't it amazing to ask, in what way will His own servants be protected? What about those who, in fact, are the faithful of His own? Let us, in fact, look a little bit further. Notice that in verse number 3, that which was being waited to be accomplished was a seal in their forehead. And those who were God's servants were the ones to receive that seal. So the unfaithful would not get that seal. Those who, in fact, were opposed to the will of God would not obtain or experience that seal. It was only for those who were God's servants. That word seal, as we noted back in chapter 5, when the scroll was sealed seven times, that identifies genuineness and authenticity. If we may put it in our language of today, those with this seal on their forehead would have an absolute statement of their association and communion with the God of heaven. They would belong to Him. They would be His. That's what that symbol, that seal in their forehead would represent. Having looked interestingly at what that seems to imply and so strongly indicates, 
It's at this point I would ask you to notice there was another place in the Bible where a sealing of this type took place. I would suggest that that scene sheds great light on this one. And as we noted at the outset of this series, quite often the references in Revelation are to the Old Testament. And it is to the ninth chapter of the book of Ezekiel that I would turn your attention. For on that occasion, we have yet one more time a statement of a sealing that is amazingly similar to the one that we're studying tonight in Revelation 7. <clears throat> in Ezekiel, the ninth chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, rather than read the entirety of that chapter, and it's not really that lengthy in a sense, I would suggest that I introduce that with some thoughts and then we will read perhaps one or two verses from it and note the clearness of how well it links to this one. Ezekiel had been given a vision. And in this vision, he in fact has been told by God the very clear and powerful fact that even those of his own people were not in fact living and doing in the way that they should. Now notice the power of that idea. Here were God's people who ought to have been devoted to Him, who ought to have been in fact earnestly following Him, and yet God told Ezekiel, my own people in far too many cases have failed me. They have not been faithful. And in fact, even my own city of Jerusalem, it was destroyed because of their unfaithfulness. In light of that thought, Ezekiel makes these observations. He begins in verses 1 and 2 by noting that God there commanded that some six men would arise. And in that arising, their purpose would ultimately be to destroy all in Jerusalem. And may I emphasize the word all. However, there was yet another person in verse number 2 who had a writer's inkhorn at his side. That is, a writing utensil and an ancient means in which the ink would have been held. It was a writer's inkhorn. Notice, though, in verses 3 and 4, that God expressly now begins to speak, and this is what he says. Verse number 4. Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. In essence, God says to the one who had the writer's ink horn, you go through Jerusalem and you put a mark on the forehead of all of those who are earnestly saddened by the fact of the iniquity of Jerusalem, those whose hearts are broken because my people have forsaken me. In essence, he's meaning that there were still a few in Jerusalem who understood the faithful and true God, and they were desirous of serving him correctly. They, in fact, were saddened by Jerusalem's iniquity. But then notice verse number 5. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. Then they begin at the ancient men which were before the house. The point we see in Ezekiel the man again with the ink horn was to put a seal upon the forehead of all the ones who were still desirous of serving God and who had not apostatized. And then God said to those other six men, you go and destroy everybody that doesn't have the mark. 
we can see that that seal was a critical element in the ancient vision of Ezekiel, indicating that it would divide those who were gods and those who were not. We shall find that in Revelation it means exactly the same thing. In fact, there are only two kinds of marks or seals which a person in this book can have. One is the seal of the servant of God as we read in this chapter. The other we will find in Revelation 13 will be that seal that nobody should want. It's called the mark of the beast. When we arrive on that occasion, we'll notice it will stand in marked contrast to the seal of this chapter. Oh, how joyous it is then to ask, how do we get this seal? It's obvious we should desire it. How do we get it? In fact, the rest of this chapter will identify how we obtain that seal. And isn't that a joyous piece of information? How you and I, even till this day, can have, in a way, symbolized a figurative seal marking us as associated with God and those who are his faithful followers. So far, the saga seems to deepen as we go, doesn't it? Let us, in fact, look a little bit further and notice in verse number 4, the answer to our question. I would suggest at this point, and let me go ahead and turn the screen over to what will be next for us, because the answer is now given. And I would ask that you begin reading with me in verse 4, and let's not only answer it in these opening verses, but let's read to the conclusion of the chapter. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed in hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Naphtali were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. After this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number. Of all the nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth upon the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The answer to our question, we observe that it was necessary for a sealing of the servants of God to take place prior to this wind beginning to blow and prior to the afflictions that would come from it. In verse number 4, John says, I heard 144,000 were sealed. 
It does not say John saw this. It says in verse 4 that he had heard it. But he did hear the number of those that were sealed. It would be entirely fair at this point to interject the comment that there is a significant religious organization who believes that number to be absolutely literal. In fact, they will often come and knock on your door and desire to speak with you. And they firmly believe that no more nor no less than 144,000 will enter heaven. It is a somewhat amazing conclusion in light of what we're about to see. In case you're wondering, those that are most clearly believing that are the Jehovah's Witnesses. But might we in fact at this point ask and observe again the power of this conclusion. Those who in fact are sealed in the forehead will be those who are preserved and protected from the onslaught of God's fury. They are the ones who in fact are His own faithful. As we have begun to see in verses 4 and following, we have an interesting listing that John saw 12,000 from each of 12 tribes of Israel sealed. That's an interesting reflection, isn't it? And as I indicate on that screen, we in fact would do well to spend a few moments tonight and try and decipher who are these 144,000. We've agreed already that you and I would prefer and strongly desire to have a seal associating us with God. However, who exactly are these 144,000? A bit of piecework and some careful looking at the Scriptures, and we can answer this, I think, rather directly. First of all, let's address the matter of, is this literal? Is it true that only and exactly and precisely 144,000 souls will enter heaven? May I suggest that the Scriptures here will help us answer that rather clearly. For again, notice with me, if we take that number literally, that absolutely requires we take the other pieces of these same verses literally. What sense does it make to take that literally, but yet every other reference in these verses from 4 on to about verse 9 figuratively? Well, certainly that makes no sense. Thus, if we take that literally, notice what else must be taken literally. Isn't it true that we have expressly mentioned the tribes out of whom the 12,000 from each are taken? Thus, if that 144,000 is literal, that means the only ones to enter heaven will be literal members of these 12 tribes and no others. But we immediately run into scriptural difficulties with that. For what about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? They lived before the tribes were ever formed. For the tribes were descendants of Jacob. That thus would mean that Abraham couldn't be saved, nor could Isaac, nor could Jacob, but yet our Savior in Matthew 8, 11 expressly said that those three will be in the kingdom of heaven. We can perhaps easily see then that we have problems here. But what else? Notice also that if these tribe names are taken literally, that would mean that no member of any tribe not listed here could be saved either. But did you notice in the listing there are two tribes that are not presented? The tribe of Dan is not listed and neither is the tribe of Ephraim. But yet there are some worthy individuals in the Old Testament who are exact descendants of those tribes. Are they thus to be avoided and excluded entirely from heaven? It would so seem if we must take this literally. But the plot will even thicken and deepen from this point onward. Notice who else would have to be excluded. He said that these 12 tribes that are listed and the 12,000 from each one, 
What about the Gentiles? If this is taken literally, no Gentile could ever be saved. No Gentile could ever enter heaven. And yet, what does that then say about the very character of Cornelius in Acts 10? Or the beautiful power of those other Gentiles to whom Paul preached in the city of Thessalonica and Philippi, as we learn in Acts chapter 16 and 17? Are all of them lost? If this is to be taken literally, the answer must be yes. And what would that say about you and me who are also of Gentile extraction? You see, to say that this is literally has taken us to a great depth of appreciation of who and only who could possibly be saved. May I suggest at this point that the 144,000 are mentioned one more time in the book of Revelation. And if we look on that second occasion, we shall find other things that will help us even greater appreciate what is not said here. In Revelation chapter 14, would you please read with me verses 3 and 4. Revelation 14 verses 3 and 4. One more time, the 144,000 are mentioned. <clears throat> and they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. And before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And thus, what else is true of those hundred and forty-four thousand? Not only were there extractions from these tribes previously listed in chapter 7, but notice with me in verse 4 of Revelation 14, we also notice that they were not defiled with women, for they were virgins. That thus means that no women will enter heaven either. Isn't that a ridiculous conclusion? If all of those earlier things are taken literally, that would mean that no women could ever be saved. But yet Jesus, what about him and his association with individuals like Mary Magdalene and Mary his own mother? And what about Hannah and other noble women of the Old Testament? And those like Dorcas in Acts chapter 9? It goes without saying that we are not to reach any conclusion of such absurdity as that. But perhaps one final thought would be, Revelation 14.4 also says that these 144,000 were virgins. So that means no married men could enter heaven either. I believe we've stated enough to lead us to say that the literal interpretation of that 144,000 is obviously incorrect. It does not mean that there's literally to be 12,000 and that only from these literal tribes who will enter heaven. If that then is not what that means, what is the significance of the 144,000? What is the idea that these were the ones sealed? Well, let us return to Revelation 7 and let us notice the following set of conclusions about those same recognitions. We've noted earlier that this book of Revelation is a symbolic book. It presents truth in signs and symbols and apocalyptic ways. The formation of the number 144,000 is as follows. 12 times 12 times 1,000. We've already noted the significance of the number 12. It has to do with a recognition of all that are followers and faithful to God. And thus we notice that by squaring the number 12, we are extending its sign of completeness. And by multiplying it by 1,000, we are extending it even further. 
in essence, all that number is indicating to us is that everyone who should be sealed is sealed. No one is left out who is not sealed that ought to be. It is a figurative way of stating the absolute fullness and completeness of God's sealing of those that are his own. That's all that that number signifies. And don't you and I sometimes use the number 1,000 in that way today? If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. We're using that number indicative of the fullness of our prior expressions and in light of the understanding that ought to be present. Similarly here, 144,000, again 12 squared multiplied by 1,000, all that God intends and ought to be sealed will be. But in light of that, we're inching closer to the full, more full statement of the solution of, again, who are those 144,000? Notice in verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, now, on this occasion, John sees not that 144,000, but a larger number. In fact, a number so large that it cannot even be computed or numbered exactly. This great multitude is simply a different perspective on the number we've already seen. In fact, as one appreciates the greatness of that number, this great multitude which no one could number... Let us, in fact, amplify more carefully verse 9 to make sure we see the point. Where were these large numbers of people? He says they were before the throne. But where is God's throne? Psalm 11 verse 3 says it's in heaven. So these, this large multitude, just like the 144,000 were saved, they're redeemed. This is not some secondary number who are going to live on earth. They, too, were saved eternally and were in heaven. That's a dramatic point. For those who come knocking on our door again will say that the great multitude is not the same as the prior one, and these are not in heaven. But the text says they are. Oh, how joyous it'll be to sing around the throne of God forevermore, thanking Him for the redemption that we've enjoyed. But notice also, these were clothed with white robes symbolic of their purity, symbolic of the fact that they are not tarnished with the evil and iniquity that surrounds that which is of Satan, and furthermore, palms in their hands. That reminds us of that scene when, in fact, our Savior rode into Jerusalem in Matthew 21 on the back of a donkey. For there they also strode palm branches before him, indicative of his kingship. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And here, these two with palms in their hands, maybe a picture would be of some aid. Here we see an artist's rendition of the sealing of these servants of God. We notice the smile on their face, indicative of the happiness that they are feeling. Sealed they are, protected from the onslaught of God's wrath poured out on the unfaithful. For they will not experience any of that. They, you see, are the redeemed in heaven. They are those eternally saved. It is to be noted that by virtue of that picture as well as some others, we might return and continue with that slide that we were just using a moment ago. As we recognize and think yet again about verse 9, where were this large multitude arisen from? It expressly notes, all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues. 
the gospel that you and I so much love is a universal gospel. It's not restricted to just a certain few, like say the Old Testament law of Moses was only for those descendants of Abraham through Jacob. Christ's law is universal. It's intended for every man and woman everywhere, regardless of language they speak or color of their skin or country they live in. And that's exactly here what it was that John saw. It is no wonder that Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He didn't say preach only to the Jews and those of these 12 tribes listed in Revelation 7. It's clear that these are not to be taken in a literal fashion in that way, but rather as a beautiful and figurative and symbolic recognition of those that have turned their life over in faithful obedience to the cause of Jesus Christ our Lord. We even noted on one occasion this morning that God desired all to come to repentance in 2 Peter 3.9. And did he not say in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 that he would have all men to come into a knowledge of the truth? We begin to see the fullness of this. Those in heaven won't just be from the United States of America. They won't just be from, say, the land of Israel or those from other specific countries on earth. But thankfully, all tongues, nations, and kindreds will be represented of the faithful ones who've been sealed in their foreheads. But may we consider other matters as well. For the chapter has just begun to whet our appetite when we arrive at verse number 10. And a second picture that would help us appreciate that latter point we noted. We have there, a, again, an artist's rendition. And if you count those particular squares that are appearing there on earth, there's 12 of them. Indicative of, again, the 12,000 from each of 12 tribes. And we've noted that those are such that there above is the large multitude standing around. It may be difficult for you to see all of that, but over in here are large multitudes which no man can number. Don't we look forward to a time when we can be with our Savior forevermore? Having been protected from the devil's characteristics and the onslaught of God's wrath. But in these situations, may we look further. And notice more clearly the identity of those who were sealed. First, that innumerable company that's presented to us in verse number 9 is also described in verses 11 and following in these words. And I'd ask you to notice some of them with me. I have italicized them for your recognition. In verse 14... When that angel, when one of the elders asked, Who are these? And John said, Thou knowest. Notice in verse 14, These are they which came out of great tribulation. Recall that we learned as we started this book the great suffering that those in the ancient Roman Empire were enduring. They were daily losing their lives because they were followers of God. John says, or rather the Elder indicated, these are they which came out of great tribulation. They have left the difficulties and afflictions of that physical world behind, and they have come out of that. But what's more, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? In what way had these washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb? And isn't that an interesting and colorful way of presenting this? 
blood is red as you and I think of it, or at least it has a tint of red, how could it make anything white? Maybe we have another strong indication that this is not a literal thing in the sense of you use literal blood to make a garment literally white. But oh, what figurative meaning that has. Let's use some other texts of the New Testament to help us better understand that point. Again, our emphasis is they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We know that that Lamb, as we've noted earlier, is Jesus, and hence the blood of the Lamb would be the blood of Christ. We remember His blood so amazingly shed forth on the occasion of His crucifixion at Calvary. When that Roman soldier in John 19.34 pierced his side and forthwith came forth blood and water, Oh, the greatness of that blood. Oh, the power of that blood. For how often are we taught that that blood's what cleanses us from sin? That blood is what washes our sins away. In 1 John 1 verse 7, we read, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. There's the significance of the blood of the Lamb. Not that it washes the body like soap, but it cleanses the spirit. It cleanses that immortal, that undying element of all of us from the sins that separate it from the God who loves it, the blood of the Lamb. And these, John recognized, and the elder indicated, were washed in the blood of the Lamb. How is one washed in the blood of the Lamb? Sometimes we sing a song that goes very much like that, don't we? washed in the blood of the Lamb. The New Testament does not leave us to question how that happens. In Titus 3 verse 5, the washing of regeneration takes us directly to the scene of John 3 verses 3 through 5, where there Nicodemus by night came to our Savior and, and in fact applauded or in fact complimented him. But Jesus immediately said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus was a bit perplexed and confused and said, How can a man who is old enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus again said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. We notice that there is the necessity of water. Later in Hebrews 10 verse 22, Our bodies are washed. That washing by way of contacting the blood, can only come in scriptural baptism. That's the only way possible. And notice that John, in seeing this innumerable multitude, said they came out of great tribulation. They had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb and had become white. When you and I are baptized, all those past sins are washed away and forgiven, and we rise in spiritual whiteness as well. We're pure and clean and undefiled, for all the sins have been washed away. These that John saw were the very ones. Isn't that an exciting text in the Bible? To remind you and me that in so doing, we have been sealed now with the protection of God, and the second death will not be ours. Later, this saga will be finished in Revelation 20, when we see that those who have the mark of the beast... That is, those that are not sealed with the seal of God will be cast into an eternal lake burning with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 20, verse 6. 
Oh, the story is a vital one. You and I then are in great need of having that seal, but it's obtained by obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's obtained when you and I come up from a watery grave to newness of life, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. It happens when you and I thus turn our life in great recognition to that confession we've made. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When that eunuch confessed that in Acts chapter 8, he said, with all my heart, when you and I make that same confession and thus resolve to live in faithful obedience to that, that seal is upon us and God's protection is with us. That's a joyous lesson of comfort, isn't it? How would that ancient Christian then respond when he would read this book and perhaps the next morning he would march out to his death by virtue of a firing squad? But he could go march out to his death knowing that he was sealed on the forehead and eternal salvation was his. I'd submit to you that you and I may not be put to death tomorrow morning for the cause of Jesus, but that lesson is as comforting to us as it ever was to them. What a joyous lesson of strength and encouragement. As we rapidly move then to the conclusion of this particular chapter, might we observe that the comfort that we see, the recognition there that in verse number 17, the very one who is in the midst of them is the Lamb. We have noted that that is none other than Jesus. And how blessed and comforted these are. But maybe the final set of observations would be these. Verse number 17 again draws from the Old Testament. And in so doing it says, The Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. You see, we are looking forward to a place where there is no defilement and no pain and no crying and no separation and no sin and no death. And here, in this particular text, information is drawn from Isaiah 25, verse 8, in which in the Old Testament, figuratively, a place where the tears would not flow and a place where there was no hunger or thirst is used to describe paradise in the perspective of God. That's the very place these, this innumerable multitude was. And isn't that the place we look forward to? A place where all the things that follow from sin will not be there. In fact, we will notice when we arrive at chapter 21 that the description there will amazingly parallel verses 15 through 17 here. And on that occasion, we'll perhaps remind ourselves of the beauty of that salvation. But tonight, in the light of what we have learned, may we summarize it in these ways. We have learned then that after the loosing of the six seals, we have in this chapter the sealing of the servants of God. And we notice that that sealing is so vital because those who are sealed are protected from the fury and wrath of God upon those who are not faithful, those who are not His own. But beautifully, and perhaps with such excitement, we have found tonight that those who were sealed are those who are obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thus the question for you and me tonight, are you obedient to that gospel? If not, dear friend, you do not carry the seal of God on your forehead in a figurative sense. You do not have that protection. In fact, if you were to die tonight, where would you be? If you, in fact, were to pass from the earthly scenes of this existence, where would you be? Would you be able to look forward to being with the 144,000 and the innumerable company who are the saved of heaven? 
Or would you be in the only other potential abode, that eternal place called hell? We each can understand and analyze our life and answer that question. Where, where, what about you? If you need to be sealed tonight, that's not any strong thing about a statement concerning a literal mark placed on somebody's forehead. That is an obedient faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight, if we could assist anyone in your obedience to that gospel, Brother Terry has chosen him of encouragement. We'd be more than excited to aid you in your public response to that truth. You need to believe in Jesus as a son of God. Repent of your sins. Turn.